1: I
2: know it's easy to feel beaten down and discouraged by all the stuff that's going on around us. Some of it good, most of it uh, right out of uh, bizarro world. But hey, once a week we have a chance to sit down with my friend Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos and get a refreshing gulp of reality. And Eric, I appreciate you stopping by today to talk about uh, everything that's going on. How are you?
1: Well, I'm good, but I'm a little depressed because yet another Airfingers quote loophole has been closed. And so we won't be able to, again, air fingers, quotes, get away with it.
2: Uh, I saw your article published this morning, and, and I got to admit, this one, I, I actually went, oh, I felt I felt a, a personal sense of loss. When we talk about the loophole that's being closed, which loophole are we talking about?
1: Yeah, well, there, there was a loophole, meaning a way to get around some obnoxious government requirements and expenses uh, via Vermont, which uh, was a state that um, you could title and register and plate a vehicle in that wasn't actually located in that state. So in other words, you know, somebody like me who lives in Virginia, let's say, where there is a very obnoxious personal property tax they issue with every year just because you own a car. They make you pay an obnoxious amount of money to possess the car. Uh, a way to get around that is to apply for uh, these Vermont plates, which you could do, get them and tag them. And then, hey, you know, they can't they, they can't mulk you in that manner. And, and also, there was, a, there was a way to get around some of these even more obnoxious requirements that some states have where you have to keep a vehicle, even if it's in your garage, on your property, registered and tagged and insured, you know, which really puts the arm on people who have project cars, parts cars, uh, collector cars, and so on because of the expense that's involved. So they would go ahead and get these Irma tags, and that would kind of keep the sharks uh, swimming around the ship, so to speak, but not actually pulling you into the water, Well, the loophole has been closed, can't do it anymore. Uh, You know, because, you know, because somebody, some clovers apparently discovered it. And those clovers, ironically enough, are, uh, and I put it in air fingers quotes, some of my colleagues in the car press who wrote articles, not cheering Vermont, uh, but rather denouncing people for getting away with it and taking advantage of the loophole. That's what car journalism has come down to these days.
2: I'm just trying to process the mindset that tries to grasp for any straw to believe that, under all circumstances, the state has to be right. I mean, what? I guess what's the fear? If the state was wrong, you know, I, you and I were talking about the the Ammon Bundy case. You know, where he's being sued by a hospital that wrongfully took a child away from, from its parents, an infant away from its parents. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the number of people who are just looking for some justification for why uh, Child Protective Services and the police and this this doctor at this hospital, why they were right to take that child as opposed to someone standing up and saying, give that child back, it's crazy how many people are just willing well, to, to go along with it.
1: The default position, which has been conditioned in now by generations of government schools, is that whatever the government says... Uh, is right, not just legally, but also morally, and that it's wrong to question or disobey. And hence, you've got this knee-jerk, reflexive attitude that people, uh, you, you see people um, manifesting when they hear that somebody got away with uh, doing something that's technically illegal. You know, it angers them that, that, that somebody would even suggest that you do such a thing. And uh, that is why we don't live in a free country anymore, because people have been conditioned to have a mindset that is anathema to freedom.
2: No, it, it rings very true. And, and I'm just sad to see, you know, the, it, it was good to know that there were workarounds. And, and I think to me, that's, that's part of the essence of Americanism is when, when government does try to get uh, oppressive, which is kind of in its DNA, that's one of the things that set us apart from other nations is we found workarounds. And if we didn't limit it outright, people were very resourceful in, in negating, you know, unjust
1: laws. And it used to be the default mindset. At least it was. uh, You know, when you and I were kids, you know, we, for example, loved watching Bugs Bunny, who would, uh, you know, who would flamox the authority figures, right? You know, it it was like we all snickered at that and thought it was a a grand idea to try to uh, figure out some way uh, to fool the the busybody government bureaucrat. Uh, Well, that whole thing has been totally upended and reversed now. And a, a large number of people in this country are just absolutely outraged when anybody would dare. Uh, to defy whatever the rules are, you know, we saw this during the height of the Rona hysteria, when 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 people would go berserk if you didn't put on the face mask. You know, I mean, it's oh yeah, it, it was really illustrative of the decay in the mindset of freedom that Americans used to once generally have, and which now has become kind of a minority view.
2: So true. So so let me ask you this because um, I think I think you have zeroed in on the problem what can we do? Starting at the individual level, what is a good way to respond to this?
1: Well, I think it's a two-step process. The first is simply to internally refuse to bow and bend a knee to this, to establish in your own mind with with regard to any given thing, to examine it and ask yourself, well, I don't care whether X is the law. Uh, I care whether it's right. Um, And if it's wrong, I'm going to reject it in my own mind as wrong. And I'm going to say so openly, and I'm going to do whatever I can get away with to uh, evade and avoid it. And the second thing is to do just that, uh, to simply refuse to comply. I know it's a scary thing, you know, because again, a lot of us have been conditioned to just put your head down, obey. You don't want to be the one who gets punished, but you've got to stand up sometimes, you know, and and if, if it's the simplest thing, no, nothing may even happen other than somebody frowns at you, you know, or expresses that they're shocked and appalled that you would not do what you're told. You know, like, for example, wearing the stupid masks uh, during the Rona. But uh, I think it may be necessary to do even more than that. You know, I'm not a, a person who advocates uh, vandalism or, or, or uh, destroying public property, but in Europe, it's gotten so desperate that people now are going out there with black cans of spray paint and Sawzalls, uh, and they're spraying over those, uh, those cameras that are everywhere. They're right. cutting down the, the – the, 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 and, and they have to. What choice do these people have? You know, they've been pushed and pushed and pushed, and at a certain point, if you can't obtain regressive grievances, if you can't get a reasonable policy out of these people, and it's very evident that they are seeking to put you in, in, in a cage, in a prison, and treat you like an animal, well, you have a right to bite back, I think.
2: Hear, hear. And I guess, the, the to me, the the most imperative thing is, you better know. Your conscience you better have a good sense personally of right and wrong that's not contingent on well did somebody in authority tell me this is okay or not you have to know for yeah, yourself that's a
1: very you know that is a very very wise and apt point i'm, I'm glad that you brought that up uh you know zolson and other dissidents throughout time were, were very calm collected and secure in their own internal knowledge that what they did was to stand up for the truth and for the right And even if they were in a jail cell somewhere, they were at peace with themselves because they knew they had not participated in a lie. And I think that's very important.
2: Yep. Well, I'm sad to see the Vermont loophole close, but... uh, um again there I, I think we're a resourceful bunch and I'm very focused on you know building the relationships as well as as building that uh, that parallel society that parallel economy that uh, that makes the the yeah. oppressive one obsolete at least to the extent that, that I can step away from it I'm going to do it every time
1: yeah that's a very practical step to take and you know the 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 longer term one uh, is to, to not only begin with ourselves to change our own mindset but to do whatever we can to help to change the mindsets of others. Because ultimately, this is not so much a political revolution as it is a spiritual and an intellectual and a psychological one. It's about changing minds. And if we change minds, we won't have to worry so much about changing the politics. Hear,
2: hear. And I think, I think we also, I, I'll echo my friend Connor Boyack, um, who says, you know, one of the biggest problems we faced is we're trying to teach adults, you know, and we're trying to appeal to adults with white papers and, you know, strong philosophical arguments, but don't neglect the kids. Because I, I promise yep. you, the other side, the one that favors coercion and statism and collectivism, they are hyper-focused on the kids right now. And anything we can do to teach kids to think clearly and independently is going to pay off huge dividends down the road.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's a reason why all of these uh, family-friendly drag shows are being performed at schools and not at old folks' homes. Right. You know, they want <laughs> they want the kids. They understand You know, it's a cliche, the kids are the future, but it is absolutely true. Uh, The reason the country has gone woke uh, is because for the past 20 plus years, uh, they've been teaching kids to be woke in the schools, you know, and and now they graduate from these government schools and they go into the workforce and they get into these corporations and they bring with them this diversity, equity, inclusion, wokest, sexist uh, ideology, and they feel it is their mission in life to serve as kind of you know, a latter-day version of Mao's Red Guards and bring this ideological crusade uh, into uh, every corner of American life.
2: Boy, isn't that the truth? And I mean, I mean, right down to the struggle sessions with <laughs> those mm-hmm. who who aren't uh, getting on board. All right, we, we've got to shift gears here, so to speak. Uh, we're going to come back in a few mm-hmm. moments. Eric Peters is my guest, and uh, Eric, when we come back, I want to hear about uh, the incredible uh, car that you were were testing. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about what we stand to lose, also in yeah. terms of uh, electric vehicles versus gas engines. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. If you check the show notes at the show.com these are for July 18th, 2023. You'll find a link that will take you directly to Eric's site. you find a lot of good stuff to read there. Check the comments. Some very informed people on his website.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
2: All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. All right, Eric, you know I'm a fan of uh, things that go fast, and uh, you, you were able to test drive a uh, Dodge Challenger. Talk to me a little bit about the variant. Tell me about your experience, and then let's talk about some of the insights that you had as, as you reluctantly had to, to let it go.
1: Sure. Well, unlike the so-called fast chargers for EVs, uh, the Challenger actually is fast, and it's fast because it has an 807 horsepower supercharged version of Chrysler's wonderful 6.2-liter uh, Hemi V8, and it's phenomenal when you think about it. That this thing, which is basically a race car in terms of its power and capability, is a street legal car, uh, produces hardly any meaningfully harmful emissions. But nonetheless, it's being forced off the road uh, because it, you know, it it it, it, it emits too much carbon. But, you know, the article that I wrote and that you referenced got into something about not not just the cars that we're about to lose, but something else, which is time and convenience. The second to last day that I had the car, I had parked it the evening before. And the morning I got up and I was going to go to the gym, and I jumped in it and realized, gosh, I forgot to put gas in it the evening before. And it was very low on gas. But no problem. I just went out to my shed, and I got one of the five-gallon jugs of gas that I keep on hand and I poured uh, the, uh, the energy equivalent of 100 miles of range into that uh, car in a matter of about two or three minutes and was back on the road again. Nice. That's something that we're about to lose. You know, I have a, I have a Mercedes EQE EV outside right now, and if I had gone out, if I go out this morning and it has uh, a discharged battery and very little range, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to have to sit there and wait for at least several hours. Uh, while it draws electricity from the house before I can go anywhere. And that's the thing that we're about to lose, or rather the thing that's about to be imposed on us, is this massive inconvenience, uh, this time suck, this this hassle, uh, that people are being conditioned to accept as reasonable and normal, even to the extent of using that word fast, as in fast charger, to describe sitting and waiting for 30 to 45 minutes at some stupid parking lot electric vehicle charging port.
2: Well, and you make the point in your article and and it rings so true. We really don't know what we've got until it's it's gone, when it's been taken away from us. Yes. then we start to wake up, oh, hey, what whatever happened? But it's not like no one was warning us or no one was
1: saying, "Hey, beware. Can you see where we're headed? Well, there's a normalcy bias, I think. You know we have all everybody who's alive today has grown up uh, in this wonderful time where it's just taken as a given that uh, anybody can have a car and you can just go anywhere you like, whenever you feel like it, it's easy. Uh, You stop and get fuel and you go. And that's people's default mental position and they think that's gonna continue forever. They don't understand that this so-called transition uh, to electrification will completely alter that and and greatly change that and uh, eliminate, largely, all of that spontaneity, uh, that flexibility, uh, also that will, you'll be tethered to this leash. You know, you won't be able to just jump in your car anytime you feel like it and drive four, or 500 miles without a thought. You know, now it's going to require planning. It's going to require budgeting all the time that it's going to take along the way. And these people who are behind this are very clear about what their agenda is. They want to throttle our mobility. They want to winnow down the circle, the radius of our ability to go places, down to a 15-minute freedom city. That's what they have in mind for us.
2: Yeah, it's it's a little discouraging to see what what their plans are, and of course, climate crisis seems to be the the new mantra. I mean, we've been living in a state of crisis for some time. Really hyped up, of course, during COVID, which we now learn was grossly exaggerated. The deaths highly overreported, and and the the severeness of it was was highly exaggerated as well. But now, since, uh, since people have kind of gotten past that and realized, okay, you know what, life did not end as we were told it would, so climate mm-hmm. crisis is now the new imperative, and boy, this seems like they're pushing it for all that, that it's worth.
1: Sure, and it's exactly the same thing fundamentally. They've grossly exaggerated and hyped up this supposed crisis, even to the extent of using that word. Previously, it was just climate change. Now it's a crisis, you know, which implies that it's an emergency and we've got to do something about it immediately. So naturally, the solution uh, is to put people into cars with a thousand-pound uh, lithium-ion uh, battery packs that require kids in the Congo uh, to claw cobalt out uh, of the earth with their bare hands, so that somebody can drive this five-thousand-pound atrocity that gets to sixty in two point nine seconds. Because again, it's an emergency.
2: Right. <laughs> no, it's uh, it, what's funny too is you know um, the the crisis that, that they're pushing. Is is being done sometimes very overtly, but often kind of kind of subtly as well. I, I saw, for instance, side by side comparisons. Okay, here's this European weather forecaster on TV. Here's the forecast. Look at the high temps, and this is in Celsius. So I'm looking. Wow, those are pretty low. But then they showed one from from just a couple of weeks ago, and where before in 2017, here's the map, and it's the same numbers. But this Mm -hmm. one's green and just showing, well, it's going to be sunny, it's going to be warm. But now it's like blood red, fires of hell, you know, like very Mm -hmm. alarming imagery, which I presume is to get us in a panic.
1: Of course it is. You know, And one of the really sad things, tragic things about this particular topic is the incredibly short memories that people have with regard to these predictions. You and I have been hearing, heck, it's been going on since before we were even around. That the earth was in imminent danger, that there was some catastrophe right around the corner. They've been talking about it since the 60s, you know, and they've been wrong every single time. They told us that an ice age was imminent in the 70s. Then we were going to burn to death in the 80s and 90s. Now, since they couldn't predict any of that accurately and were wrong on every count, they came up with the climate is changing, which is wonderfully fluid because it can be anything that you want, right? Sure. You know, they can could, they could literally say, oh my gosh, it's hot today. Oh, it's cold today. Oh, it rained. We got a hurricane. Oh, it did. Whatever it is, the climate is changing, and then it's a crisis. We've got to do something about it. And it astounds <laughs> me that people continue to give any credence at all to these so-called experts who have been literally wrong every single time about every crisis, in your fingers, quotes, that they said was just around the corner.
2: Well, and what's interesting, too, is the vehemence with which the uh, the true believers go out there and proselytize this, this crisis it's it's cultish, and I don't use that just to be you know provocative. They they really get angry if you don't agree with them. If you if you even express skepticism, they're they're you know they're ready to essentially burn you at the stake.
1: Well, I think that's exactly so. And I remember reading something at the height of the uh, the so called pandemic that I thought was so insightful. Um, uh, and it was essentially that we live in a secular age. And so many people have abandoned religion, traditional religion, belief in, you know, faith in God and so on. That's sort of spiritualism, which has left this grand chasm in, uh, in them in terms of finding meaning and purpose in their lives. And they feel empty. Uh, and they, you know, naturally, there's this human instinct to want to do so-called the right thing, to be on the right side of things. So that void has been filled with these secular political religious ideologies. Like, you know, the mask wearing, like the climate crisis. And it's just one thing after the next that has served the function of a kind of deranged religion that's being used to lead people to hell, frankly.
2: Agreed. And again, the the best thing you and I can do is, uh, first of all, keep our wits about us, but... Um have that healthy sense of skepticism and be willing to to do your own fact checking. Do you remember just a couple of years ago when the vaccine was being rolled out? How there was like there was this this decided push in the media for now no, no, don't get out there and do your own fact checking. You're not an expert, mm-hmm. you know. You can't trust yourself.
1: Yeah, well, I'll never forget that. And I hope a lot of people uh, feel the same way. It's inc- it's imperative to do due diligence to find out to not take somebody's word. I mean, my God, who would buy a timeshare? without reading the contract first. I mean, it, you know, people people exert more due diligence when buying a used car than they do with things that are infinitely more important and that's really tragic. Here
2: here. Well, if if there's anything automotive or freedom related, I want to commend people to your website ericpetersautos.com. Um so you got rid of the Challenger. What what did you uh, what did you have to replace it with?
1: <laughs> the Mercedes EQE which is an electric vehicle, and when they dropped it off yesterday, they only dropped it off with 145 miles of indicated range remaining, uh, as opposed to always leaving me with a, a new car with a full tank of gas. And the reason that they couldn't leave it with a full charge, of course, is because there's no place to charge it anywhere near where I live. So you know, I, I get to start the day without driving it, but sitting here waiting for it to charge.
2: Wow. Lucky you. Eric. Lucky me. Eric, thanks so much <laughs> for your
0: time. Great to visit with you as always. Likewise, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I'd like
2: to thank my sponsors, including Monticello College.org, LifesavingFood.com, climbingupward.com. By the way, Dr. John Pulver will be joining me, um, I'm hoping, tomorrow on the program. So stick around for that. As well as tmcpnation.com. That's my buddy John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. So I'm starting something new today, and it's actually coming up in the next segment. This will be a regular feature, and that is the article of the day. Now, I know I share articles every day, but um, basically I will highlight one that I feel is especially noteworthy. And yes, like dessert, I'm saving it for last, but I hope that uh, you'll stick around. I, I think this today's is, is really a remarkable story, as well as kind of a, a fascinating and, and kind of uncomfortable lesson, too, for parents. I'll tell you more about it coming up in a few moments. Again, you can always subscribe to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, free of charge. Just click on show notes. It'll ask for your email, which I will never share or sell or give to anyone. And every day that I do the show, I'll share my show notes with you, including links to the authors or to the stories that I'm sharing with you. All right. Well, this this one doesn't surprise me a whole lot, but uh, the New York Times is taking a closer look at why people want guns. By the way, somebody had something on Twitter the other day. I can tell you in one word why people want to own guns. And, you know, maybe it's just there's a toxic side of Twitter. I would have said the word would be liberty. Yes, freedom, autonomy, you know, something like that. Now, a lot of people kind of went to to a really different place, and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But the New York Times is looking at why people want guns, and, of course, their findings are not very surprising. Andrea Woodberg, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says the left is now arguing that, well, the problem is gun owners are, see, what is it, uh, insecure, paranoid, and trigger-happy. Well then, I guess we should probably give them up right away, don't you think? Here's what she says. Andrew Woodberg writes, The New York Times reports that social scientists are examining why people want guns. And the conclusions are bad for gun owners. Writes the Times, American gun owners are, gun owners are check notes, uh, insecure, paranoid, suicidal, and trigger-happy. Look closely at what the article says, though, and she says it's just errant nonsense. The essay, titled Why Some Americans Buy Guns, promises to explain how sociologists are just beginning to understand who is buying guns and how gun ownership makes them feel. Naturally, she says it opens with a parade of horribles. More Americans are buying guns. More people are being killed by guns. Between 2019 and 2020, gun sales rose by 64%, while homicides increased from 14,392 to 19,350. Now, Andrew Woodberg says, look, here's a tip. Whenever someone uses different calculations for comparisons, be suspicious. While sales rose by 64%, homicides rose by only 34%. And consider, too, that 2020 was the year Democrats destroyed policing across the U.S., while leftist prosecutors turned the criminal justice system into a revolving door. The Times' correlation is dicey at best and causation is impossible to, to prove. But it is true. As people watched Black Lives Matter and Antifa rampage through American cities and towns while police retreated, a new type of gun owner arose in America. Of the 7.5 million people who bought their first firearm during that period, a survey found 5.4 million until then had lived in homes without guns. This is according to the New York Times article. The new buyers were different from white men who have historically made up a majority of gun owners. Half were women, nearly half were people of color, 20% were black, and 20% were Hispanic. Now, sociological research, which is a decidedly unscientific science, managed to nail the primary reason these new buyers were in the gun market, self-defense, or, as the essay implies, paranoia. But a study of the individuals who said they were planning to purchase a second, or first or second firearm during the early days of the pandemic found that would-be buyers were more likely to see the world as dangerous and threatening than individuals who were not planning to purchase a firearm. Those planning to buy firearms were more likely to agree strongly with statements like, people can't be trusted, people are not what they seem, and you need to watch your back, compared with those not planning a purchase, noted Dr. Anestis, an author of the study. Buyers were also more fearful of uncertainty. They tended to strongly agree with statements such as, unforeseen events upset me greatly, and I don't like not knowing what comes next. Now, to me, that's just basic human nature, but... Wow, gee, that could only mean that they are clinically paranoid, probably shouldn't be owning guns in the first place. Andrew Whitberg says, you just know the Times writer finds it incomprehensible that absent police, people would fear predators and take steps to protect themselves. More guns inevitably meant more guns used in suicides as opposed to alternative methods. We also know that South Korea, the nation with the highest suicide rates, has some of the world's strictest gun laws. Again, correlation and causation just don't meet up without brute force. Now, the article also notes that improperly stored guns are a risk to young people. and That's true. If you have children, you got to spend the extra money to keep your gun safe. A gun safety class is wise, too. But the wackiest part of the article is reading that sociologists gave students from gun-owning homes mild electrical shocks to see whether they felt more comfort from a friend's hand or a mock gun. Now, those students did, while students unfamiliar with guns experienced anxiety holding them. Now, this was supposed to be analogous to a 2006 study showing that women, when given a mild shock, gained comfort from their husband's hands. Based on the Times' description of the study, it's flawed on its face. First, a friend is not a spouse so the emotional connection is different. Second, the study is valid only if the wives in 2006 were also given a mock gun to hold in comparison. Third, if your limbic system perceives a threat and you were raised knowing that guns are a great form of self-defense, better probably than your friend, you you might also find that gun comforting. Now, as for the students unfamiliar with guns, feeling anxiety holding them, that's probably because they've been indoctrinated to fear them. And a gun like any other tool, is something requiring safety training and learned familiarity. Sociology, she says, really is a junk science. The article then insists guns don't keep you safe because they raise the risk of homicide. However, the New York Times ignores the CDC study showing the defensive use of guns outweighs the risk by an overwhelming factor. And By the way, she links to that study. And finally, Andrea Woodberg writes, these crackpot researchers now want to show that just as a ha- to a hammer, everything is a nail. To a gun owner, everything is a legitimate target. She says, I wouldn't trust that conclusion either. Here's the bottom line. Guns are tools that can be handled wisely or poorly. A healthy gun culture could teach wise handling, just as it would emphasize law-abiding conduct. There's no greater killer in the world than a government that turns against its citizens something that always prece- that's always preceded by disarming those same citizens hurricane katrina showed that when seconds count police are days away and finally the new york times and sociologists should not be trusted this is an attempt to combine opposition to leftism with mental imbalance that imbalance rather that's a tactic right out of the soviet union pretty interesting stuff not surprising, but you do see that, that, uh, that push. It's one of the reasons why, if you get my show notes, you'll notice today's meme. This was a tweet from Jay Burton. Very puzzling that right-wingers aren't willing to disarm at the behest of an increasingly frenzied and crazy-eyed liberal mob that day-by-day day gets more explicit about their desire to see conservatives harmed and killed. Now, you may say, well, that just sounds paranoid, but <laughs> hey... You know, we we have uh, the gift of of uh, fear for a reason. When the hair on the back of your neck stands up and tells you, ooh, something's not right, you're actually supposed to pay attention to that. And just for the record, if all you know about guns is, well, you know, the people who have them are just terrible and irresponsible, I promise you have not been hanging out with the right kind of people. You spend a little bit of time with the community of shooters and people who train regularly, and you will find they are not only among the most law abiding and, and down to earth and stable individuals that you will find, but they're also very helpful and thoughtful and willing to help other people who don't have the same degree of knowledge that they have gain confidence and skill so that they can see that, you know what, even though the media and even though, you know, the people who really, really want power are not in favor of guns in private hands, the firearm has a very respectful place in modern society. And when it comes right down to it, I mean, I I also would have to acknowledge uh, Mike Vanderbilt, may he rest in peace, said it beautifully when he said, you know, the reason I will never comply with gun control is because he says, my gun guarantees that when democracy fails, I still have a vote. I know that's a scary prospect, but look around you and ask yourself, well, could democracy fail? Maybe you should ask it this way. Is democracy failing? I don't know how I would answer that question. I will let you apply your own answer. But it's definitely a question worth considering. All right, coming up. I've got uh, two articles to share. One of them, the article of the day. Wow. It is a story that I think you're going to find miraculous, to put it mildly. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay,
2: a couple quick articles I want to share. This one I'm just going to touch on briefly, but I would encourage you, please, find the time to read Annie Holmquist's latest uh, Substack article trust the science, and skip the gender-neutral clothes and toys. This is about stopping confusing kids and getting them thinking straight. I don't know, You maybe you've seen this. Have you seen that some parents are like, well, you know, I want to be very gender-neutral, you know, very awake in how my kids are raised. She says, stay-at-home father, Jay Dichter prided himself on what he called blurring gender lines, a trait he tried hard to pass along to his own son. So he hid the kitty clothing that sported footballs and instead gave his son a baby doll to push in a stroller on their walks. But then his two-year-old discovered tractors and the gender-neutral charade was over. Deicher says, I had to make a choice, buy him clothes with pictures of heavy machinery on them and make the kid happy or force him to wear shirts emblazoned with fuzzy animals to appease me. Now, Deitcher apparently fought it at first, trying to interest his son in other directions, but nothing worked. Finally, he gave in, letting his son immerse himself in the traditional boy world of machine-oriented clothing and toys. All right. Now, look, you know, we can be harsh. Well, now, what does this dad think he was trying to do? At least he came to his senses. You know, there's there's a lot of folks who don't. Now, he apparently felt like a failure when he saw his attempt at gender-neutral parenting fall apart. But he shouldn't take that personally, says Annie Holmquist. She says, unfortunately for him, that quest was always going to be an uphill battle because it's kind of hard to fight against the scientific facts of biology. One of those facts being, yes, there are biological differences between the sexes. And it's those differences, not crafted, polished or politicized rather societal norms that drive little boys toward trucks and tractors and little girls towards dolls and other caregiving toys. This is where I'm going to pump the brakes and tell you, you should take a look at the article and read it for yourself. Annie is a wonderful thinker. She writes with heart, and she she has just a lot of wisdom. But I love her conclusion. Encourage your girls to be girls. Encourage your boys to be boys. Stop the confusion and start them thinking straight. Agreed. There's enough confusion out there in the world. Not something you should be foisting on your kids. All right. Ready for the article of the day? This is, this is a mind-blowing article. This is from Lenore Skenazy. Pick this one up off intellectualtakeout.org. This is titled, Why Our Kids Would Have Died in the Jungle. And I don't know if you've heard about this, but she says, emergency workers recently rescued four siblings between the ages of 1 and 13 who had survived in the jungles of Colombia for 40 days after their plane crashed. After all the elation, much of the American public was left slightly confused. How could kids that young be that resourceful? Well, anthropologist David Lancey, author of Child Helpers, A Multidisciplinary Perspective, and other books about kids and other cultures, said, My response is they do this routinely. They look after their brothers and sisters, including babies, they hunt, they forage, they build shelters, and in short, says Lenore Skenezi, they put us to shame. Now the children, Leslie, Solaney, Tien, and Kristen, who had his first birthday during this ordeal, were traveling with their mother and uncle and a pilot on a small plane when its engine died. It crashed into one of the most remote regions of the Amazonian jungle back on May 1st. Their mother survived for four days, but after that, with all the adults dead, the kids were on their own in a forest filled with poisonous plants, venomous snakes, ravenous jaguars, and about 16 hours of rain each day. That's not to mention the drug traffickers and militias. When searchers reached the plane sixteen days after it crashed, they assumed all aboard had died until one asked, Where are the bodies of the children? When the team realized the kids had survived, the Colombian government organized a massive search. It began with members of the military, but soon they were joined by two hundred local indigenous people. Normally the two groups are mortal enemies, but on this mission more than three hundred people worked as a team. And the search was insanely difficult because of the density of the forest canopy, which lets in little light, and the near-constant rain made it almost impossible to follow tracks or to yell loudly enough for the kids to hear. The searchers played tapes of the children's grandmother telling the kids that that adults were looking for them. They also dropped 10,000 leaflets, giving the kids encouragement and advice. And Lenore Skenazy says it's unclear whether they needed any. By all accounts, 13-year-old Leslie took charge. She was raised by her grandmother in a remote village. She learned to cook at age 8. And when her parents were off working, she often took care of her, of her siblings. Rather. So after the kids ate a sack of cassava flour they salvaged from the plane, Leslie led them off to hunt and gather. They took with them some clothes, a tarp, mosquito netting, a flashlight, and a music box. In the jungle, they collected water in a soda bottle and ate... Uh, I don't know how you say this, uh, avature, something like a passion fruit, and milpesos, which supposedly tastes like avocados, and they hid in tree trunks to avoid predators. Leslie made shelters from branches held together with hair ties. Now, the searchers traversed over 900 miles looking for the children, at one point actually passing within 200 feet of them. In the end, the kids were found about four miles from the crash. When kids grow up in indigenous cultures far from modern anything, they learn the skills of life by practice, observation, paying attention, listening, not being the center of attention, and being under an obligation from birth to help out and aspire to be like the adults, says Lancy. Meanwhile, in our country, we legally prevent kids from developing that resourcefulness. Our authorities investigate and sometimes even arrest parents who let their children walk half a mile or spend six minutes alone in the library. True story. That happens. By the way, Lenore Skenazy says you can help fight those laws by joining her advocacy efforts. Rather, Now, this wild overestimation of danger and underestimation of kids goes so deep that the American Academy of Pediatricians put out a white paper a few years ago with this warning. Quote, young children have developmental limitations that prevent them from being safe pedestrians, end quote. Well, thanks to all those limitations, the AAP recommends that children should not be unsupervised pedestrians before 10 years of age, except in limited situations. Lenore Skenazy says, well, I'm guessing those limited situations do not include 40 days unsupervised in the jungle. I mean, I'm I'm pretty blown away. That's... It's a remarkable story. And I grew up on movies like Seven Alone. You know, if you remember the pioneer kids whose parents die and seven kids have to make their way across the plains or uh, find their way to, to survival. I mean, it's, yeah, it was a, it was a you know, movie made, made, you know, as kind of an after-school special for kids, but still very thought-provoking. But I look at my kids and I think, okay, I've tried to teach them, you know, some, some basic skills how to change a tire, things like that. But I have to wonder, man, do they have the kind of mental resiliency to, uh, to know that in a situation like that they have options other than just laying down and giving up and, well, I guess I'll just die because there's nothing else I can do. I'm super impressed that these kids were able to make it work not just for a short period of time, but for 40 days I mean, like I said, there's almost something biblical in that that they could survive and take care of each other. And and again, we're not talking about you know these are teenagers, and they they have you know all this rationality. You have one 13 year old, and the rest of the kids on down to you know what one year old baby. That's pretty daunting. Something tells me that uh, those kids have the the mental resiliency to go far. I mean, what a sad situation to go through. What a terrible thing to see your mom die as well as the other adults. I can't imagine how, how scary it would be to be alone in the jungle, knowing that there are risks all around you. And yet they made it work. I know, it's it's like, well, make it, make up your mind here, Brian. Are you are you shocked at uh, the the horrific situation they found themselves in or are you amazed at how resourceful they were and how courageous they were to survive and to make it work in spite of almost overwhelming odds being against them. And I'll be honest, I don't know. I'm kind of ping-ponging back and forth between the two. I don't know if I would be strong enough in a situation like that to keep my wits about me and to, you know, to want to keep going. After 40 days? Oh, man. Man. You know, maybe this is just my old age speaking, but I'd be like, you know, you know, I've had an okay life. I've I've accomplished a couple of things that I wanted to do. Uh, maybe it's okay. You know, if God wants to call me home, go ahead, call me home. I don't know who all taught those kids. I mean, they talk about their grandmother, you know, helping to raise them. But I promise you that there was someone in their life who was a positive influence or who helped them recognize that they are not helpless little automatons who need to have permission for every move that they make. Now, we know people who are like this. We know kids who are like this. Uh, I don't know what, what breakfast cereal I should be eating. Choose for me, Mommy! No, I've seen this with my own eyes. I'm not saying we have to raise, you know, basically the equivalent of little juvenile Rambos, but... Somebody did something right in these kids' lives, and I think there's a lesson in there for all of us,
0: and we get to decide what that lesson is. This is The Brian Hyde Show.